10,000 hours. That's how long Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, Outliers, it takes to become an expert at something. 10,000 hours. It's a long time. 10,000 hours it takes to become really great. So if you wanted to learn to play the violin, 10,000 hours. If you want to become a great artist, to become an expert painter, 10,000 hours. If you want to be great at something, it's going to take a lot of effort and attention and focus. I was looking up some of the, what I would consider maybe some of the, the greats uh, in of our culture today. And um, it, it's interesting. You, you would look at the amount of work that somebody who is what you would call great or successful or, or, or really skilled and expert, and you see that they, there's a, a focus and a determination and a devotion that goes above and beyond. Take Steph Curry, for instance. Shooting guard for the Golden State Warriors, uh, has won several NBA championships, has been MVP several times. Last year was the NBA scoring champion. Steph takes a minimum of 250 shots a day to be great. Or how about Tiger Woods? When Tiger was at his peak, was winning majors at a, at a clip that nobody else could touch, Tiger was, playing, was practicing golf 12 hours a day. He'd wake up about 6.30, play, play, go to the driving range, play uh, nine holes, go to lunch, go back to the driving range, play another nine holes, go back to the driving range. It's a full day. He said, if, if you practice six hours a day, well, that's a, a nice half day for you. How about famous um, celloist Yo-Yo Ma? Yo-Yo Ma, if you're familiar with his work, he is one of the world's premier uh, cellists, and he is known to have practiced between three and six hours a day to become great. So the reality is it takes devotion and attention and focus to be great at something, to, to excel at something, to become an expert at something. So the question I want us to ask today is what are you devoted to? What is it in your life that you devote yourself to? One of my favorite books is a book written by John Mark Comer. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And you guys are probably tired of me talking about it, but it's that good. And he says this about devotion. He says that attention is the beginning of devotion. So maybe the better question for you today, and if you're watching from home, the better question that I want you to ask yourself is, to determine our devotion, we have to ask, where are we putting our attention? So, so for you, where, where is your attention going? Because often where our, our attention goes, our devotion follows. And this is a really important question to answer. This is really important for us to get a handle on because what you're devoted to is where your time is going to go. And it's going to impact the way that you spend your life. And, and I think we know this is true. If you look around your life and you say, I'm not, maybe, maybe not sure where I'm, I'm devoted to, but where do I spend my time? And so if you say, hey, family is what it is for me. Family is that thing that I'm devoted to. Well, do you spend the most time with your family? You might, you might say, well, it seems like I spend the most time at work. Well, is that that thing that you are giving your attention to? Is that thing, thing that you are devoted to? Because where your attention is, your devotion follows. The last couple of weeks, we've started a series in the book of Titus called Blueprints. And we're seeing that God has given us the blueprints for life, the blueprints for the good life. And, and we, we see that throughout God's word, that God has a plan for our life. And if we would follow that plan, it'll lead us to a place uh, of fullness and deepness and joy that we can never experience on our own. You know, I love the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, well, that, you know, the, the world and, and the enemy, they want to steal your attentions and your affections. But me, I've come so you may have life and have it abundantly. 
You may have the, the full life, the, 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 the joyful life, the good life. But to find this good life, to live this good life, and to experience this good life, there is a plan that God gives us. There is a blueprint that God gives us to follow. And only by God's blueprint can we really experience the good life. So let me ask you a question. If I asked you on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you fall on this scale as experiencing a good life? Like if you just look at your life, look at your relationships, look at everything that's going around you, and you say, where do I fall? See, for some of you might say, I'm at maybe a 7. Others you might say, I'm more of a 3. And you might say, well, things are good in my life, but I just don't know that I'm experiencing the good life. You know, relationships are hard, and work is messy, and this pandemic thing, it's a mess. It's all over the place. I just don't know where I'm at. I think some things are good. Some things, yeah, they're just messy. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. We can add a lot of circumstances for this. But you know what? It's interesting is the Bible tells us that, that, that the joy, the good life, the deepness, the abundant life that Jesus comes to give is not reliant on our circumstances. But it's God that gives the good life. So, so I wonder if we had to ask ourselves, why are we not experiencing the good life like we see in the Bible that we're called to, to live and to experience? Could it be that we've been focused on the wrong things? That we've pulled our attention onto the wrong things? Last year, I was out mountain biking and uh, had a friend in town from Texas, and we decided we're going to go mountain biking. I'm not a very good mountain biker, and he never mountain bikes, so we thought it'd be a really good idea to go hit a really hard trail. So we went down to Buena Vista, and we were hanging out, and we were riding this trail, and we were having a great time. He didn't have a helmet, and I didn't know what I was doing, but we still had a great time. So we're out riding around, and I'm looking around at the pretty trees, and there's this rock, and I decide I'm going to go over this rock, not really paying attention. I'm looking around. So I go over this rock, and I look down, and there's nowhere to go. So the front suspension of my mountain bike just buries in the rock. I fly over the handlebars, try to catch myself, which... You know, they say to fall well. I did not fall well. Just to let you guys know. I sprained both wrists and uh, tweaked my back, and it was just not, it was not great. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was not great. See, I would have been fine if I would have been paying attention, but I, I diverted my, my, my focus. I looked the wrong way. And see, I think a lot of us in life, we do that. We say, well, it, you know, th this is something I need to put my attention on. This is somewhere I need to focus. But instead, I divert that focus and that attention, and it changes my course. And see, this is exactly what was going on in the church in Crete. See, the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, and Titus was one of his protégés, and Titus was one of his church planners, and Titus was kind of a fixer. And, and the Apostle Paul writes to Titus and says, Titus, I need you to go to Crete, or this is why I left you in Crete, so you can set these things back in order. You can take this, this situation that's going on in Crete, these churches that have lost their focus, that have drifted away from the, the, the devotion that they began with, and you can set things in order. So if you were with us last week, we saw that Paul writes to Titus and says, hey, Titus, your first measure of business is to go and to appoint leaders who can go over this church, these churches in Crete and it can set things right. And so appoint elders who are going to be people that can fix and refocus the church. So if you were with us last week, we, we see this characteristic in verse 9. Notice what Paul says in verse 9 to Titus. He says this, go and find church leaders who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. 
And so there is a need, there is an, an issue in the church in Crete because they have lost their focus. They've allowed culture to infiltrate the church. They have allowed uh, leadership to allow bad teachers to come in and to sway people, God's people away. And so, Titus, go in, and we need to reset the focus of the church. And what we're going to see today is that the Apostle Paul gives Titus the blueprint for how to do that. And in doing so, he gives us the blueprint for a healthy church. And so I'm excited for us to walk through this today because I think this is going to have a lot of really good application for us today. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. And we're going to flip to Titus chapter 1 or or grab your phone and pull up the Bible app and go to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 10 through 16 this morning. But as you turn there, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this book of Titus that you uh, inspired Paul to write, that you breathed these words into Paul's pen, Lord. And we can look at this today and see that you've given us um, really uh, the, the blueprint for a healthy church and uh, the, the, the reality, Lord, that, uh, that we have to be aware and we have to be focused on and set our attention on the right things. Otherwise, our devotion will drift and we'll find ourselves going off a path. We know we don't want to go. And so it's a reminder today, Lord, that your truth matters, that being devoted to the right thing matters. So, Father, I pray that you'll uh, illuminate our own hearts this morning, help uh, draw our minds into maybe some areas where we have lost focus or that maybe we have drifted and our attention has changed and taken our devotion the wrong way. Hey, Father, I I just am so thankful that we can be here together this morning. And, uh, Lord, we want to just come to you and and ask, Lord, that you move in uh, the life of Ted Bornhoft. Lord Ted is currently, as you know, in ICU and fighting for his life with COVID pneumonia. And Lord, our hearts go out to, to Sandy and the entire family, Lord, is there by Ted's side. And Ted is fighting. He's not given up. He is fighting. And so, Lord, we pray that you move in Ted's health, that you move with the doctors and the nurses and bring Ted through this, Lord, and give Sandy uh, the strength and the peace and the encouragement to keep her eyes on you this entire time. Father, we pray for Mike Tipton, who is now home uh, from the hospital and and recovering and healing. We pray for strength and continued healing and and energy for Mike. And we pray for uh, so many that are in our community, our extended families in this country and around this world that are walking through a really difficult season, Lord. Help stir us up to, to love one another like you call us to love and to be the people you've called us to be. So, Father, light your word for us this morning so it can be our path as we see how we can live to be people who devote ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of uh, months ago, I was out, and we uh, stopped by at a restaurant to pick up something really quick to bring home. And I get to the counter. I'm getting ready to order, and I notice there's nobody at the counter. I look behind the counter, and I see there's just, like, boxes everywhere and trash all over the place. The floor doesn't look like it's been mopped in a long time. And I look over, and here's this group of employees, and they're high school kids. You know, I'm imagining myself working at Dairy Queen when I was 15, and they're over there doing this, you know, scrolling, playing on their phones. And I'm like, <clears throat> you know, trying to get their attention. And probably two or three minutes go by, and they don't ever come to the counter. Finally, one of the, the, the guys look up, and he's like, oh, hey, man, what can I get for you, you know? And I'm like, okay, these are high school kids. I get it. But if you've ever been in there, you know it's a little frustrating. And, and you wonder, how does it get to this place? Like, I, I, if you called the owner up, and the owner, you said, hey, I need to give you a, a quick snapshot of what the restaurant looks like, they'd probably be upset. But how did it get so messy where the employees are off focus and nobody cares? Well, it's usually a leadership problem. Usually it's a trickle-down leadership problem at some level, and the group has lost their focus. And this is what's going on in Crete. There's been a leadership shortage in Crete. 
And that's why Paul says, Titus, you've got to go and you've got to find leaders and you've got to appoint elders because the church is unhealthy. The church is in a really messy place. So you've got to go set things right. You have to go actually set things in order because culture has infiltrated the church and the leadership has allowed false teachers to come in and begin to take people off mission. And so I want you to notice what Paul says here to Titus. He says, appoint leaders, go in and, and refocus the church. Look with me, starting here in verse 10. Paul says this, chapter 1 in verse 10. He says, for there are many, remember, he says elders, we need to appoint elders who hold firm to the truth so they can rebuke those who contradict it. He, he continues on, for, it's kind of a door, right? It, when we, we already see the word for, we're supposed to ask, what is, what is the word for, there for? And so he's tying these passages together. So he says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And so Paul paints this picture that, that there has been this infiltration into the church of teachers who are taking people off mission, who are taking people off the blueprint that God gives us. Remember, week one, we said the blueprint is what? Foundation in faith, built up in the truth and protected by God's promises. Here, they've moved off the blueprint already, right? We're in verse 10, right? Paul's already, the first thing he's hitting is they have moved off the blueprint, so who are these people? Who's Paul talking about here? Well, he gives us a little bit of a glimpse. It's not all uh, going to fall into this category. It sounds like it's a pretty broad category. But there is one group, and especially Paul is talking about, and he calls them the circumcision party. Now, I don't know about you. If you were going to start a party, that might not be the name that you would choose. You know, it's probably not going to be your political party or maybe your fantasy football team name. Or, or maybe it is. I don't know. But it's probably not the best. So who's Paul referring to here? Scholars think that Paul's referring to this group of Jewish Christians who they call the Judaizers. And, and these Judaizers were people that grew up Jewish, that grew up following all the Old Testament laws, following all the, 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 the rituals, who, who kept the Sabbath, who, who were rule keepers. And then they meet Jesus. And they put their faith in Jesus, but yet they continue to believe that you still need to follow in the Old Testament laws and customs. And so these people have, have kind of moved into a place of prominence now where they're teaching in the churches. They're saying, hey, yes, Jesus, he's great. We love Jesus. But don't forget, you also need to do these things. So they probably would say things like, hey, we, we love Jesus. Let's, let's make Jesus still foundational in what we do. But don't forget, we, we need to eat kosher. We need to follow the, the Jewish diet. We need to, to do the things cleaning ritual-wise that, that we are told to do in the Old Testament. Now, just a, just a side note, that would mean that if you were following the Old, the Old Testament Jewish diet, that you couldn't eat bacon-wrapped jalapeno poppers. And that would be an issue for me, just, just so you know. I'm just being honest. So I think one of the common graces that we have now in the new covenant of Jesus is that we can eat bacon. Amen? I mean, bacon is one of God's good graces. So if I am a, am a Gentile Christian in that church, I'm going to be pretty upset just for that reason alone. So they're saying no bacon. But then they're also saying things like, you guys need to go get circumcised and you need to go do these things. I'm sure eyes were popping like that. And so there is this tension now in the church that the Jewish Christians are saying to the Gentile Christians, hey, you guys got to get with the program. You guys got to keep all these Old Testament laws. You need to honor the Sabbath on Saturday, which means, no, you can't go to the soccer game. You guys can't go to the store. You can't do any of that kind of stuff. And Paul's going, wait, 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 wait. It's, it's Jesus and only Jesus. And they're saying, no, it's Jesus plus something else. They're saying it's grace plus works. And Paul's saying, hey, didn't you read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? It's by grace we are saved through faith and not unto yourself. It's a gift of God. 
And so Paul says, this is an issue. We need to address it. Notice how Paul refers to these people. This isn't one of these things where Paul's like, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. No, Paul's like, this is a huge deal because truth matters. So notice the terms that Paul refers to these people by. He calls them insubordinate, meaning that they don't submit to God's authority, that they don't look to God's word as the ultimate guide. They put their own rules on top of God's. He calls them empty talkers. People who sound good, who have a lot to say, but don't have any substance. You know what we call that? All talk with no walk, right? It's all talk and no walk. He also calls them deceivers. That what they were teaching was actually deceiving people. It was pulling people away. It was the wrong thing. They were teaching lies. And Paul actually gets kind of personal here. And if I was a Cretan, I would maybe take some offense at this, but I think they know he's right. Paul says, Titus, don't be surprised because Cretans don't have a very good reputation. See, there was a Greek poet who was from Crete. His name was Epimenides. And Epimenides said this about the Cretans. Paul quotes him here in verse 12. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. One of the Cretans, Paul quotes, a prophet of their own says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. And this testimony is true. And so he's saying the Cretans just are kind of known for being liars. Actually, there was a term in ancient Greek world, if you were to Cretanize something, it means that you were to lie and to add lies upon lies. And so Paul is saying, look, this is to be expected. Culturally, there is an issue here where truth is not valued. And we have to go in and fix that. We have to go in and actually change that because it's taking people off mission. It's changing their focus and taking them away from where God's blueprint is leading them to be in. And then Paul says we have to do something about it. So notice verse 11. Notice what Paul says. They have to be silenced. Now, I don't think Paul is saying that you need to take them out back. You know, I think Paul is just saying that we need to close their mouths. We need to address this situation and we need to fix this. He says they need to be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. And I, what I want us to see in these next few verses is that Paul really gives us several blueprints for a healthy church. And here's the first one that Paul gives us. He says this, a healthy church stays on mission. That if you're a healthy church, you are a church that stays on mission. See, the church in Crete had gotten off mission and had gotten unhealthy. Notice verse 11 again. In verse 11, it says that they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. This word upsetting is actually the, the same word that we see used in John chapter 2 when Jesus goes into the temple and starts flipping tables. It means to overturn. So if you know that story, it's really amazing. In John chapter 2, we see that Jesus and his disciples, they go to the temple. And the temple was meant to be this place of prayer. The temple was to be this place where you experience and encounter God. And Jesus gets to the temple, and he notices outside the temple, there's this almost this like corrupt farmer's market where they're selling sheep and oxen and, and, duh, and pigeons and all these things that people could buy to make sacrifices. And so Jesus, he gets mad because Jesus knows that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. The temple was meant to be a place to go and experience God. So what does Jesus do? John 2 tells us that Jesus takes a, a group of cords and makes a whip. And Jesus just goes in and starts knocking stuff off the tables. I mean, it, it was incredible. And that Jesus, same word, overturn, starts flipping tables. Stone Cold Steve Austin style, right? Jesus just starts flipping tables. Now, I don't know about you, but often when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as this like serene, always chill, fair, fair skinned, blue haired, blonde guy, right? Who kind of floats. We get this picture like Raphael in the Transfiguration, right? We see this and we think, oh, that's Jesus, right? Kind of just really serene and 
No, no, don't get it wrong. When, when Jesus stood for truth and you went against that truth, Jesus was going to come flip a table because Jesus had righteous anger in that moment. And so Jesus says, just like Paul, when we see people get off mission and drift away, we got to fix that. We can't just hope they figure it out. we got to go in and we have to fix that situation. Now, back here in Crete, what is going on is that these, these false teachers are, are, are really overturning people's, uh, people's focus. And what's happening is they're drifting away and the church is losing its devotion and they're losing its mission. Back in Kansas City, not far from where I used to work, was this really great Irish restaurant. And we would go on St. Patty's Day and have a great Reuben or bangers and mash or whatever your, your favorite St. Patty's Day uh, cuisine is. But what was interesting about this restaurant, it was in an old church. And it was really cool. When you walked in, you just felt like, hmm, like this isn't why this building was built. Like, yeah, it creates a cool restaurant, but this isn't why this building is built. See, what happened? And, and we don't know. They could have outgrown that space and built a new church, sold that to the restaurant. But I wonder, could that church have been overturned because they got off mission? Could that church have been overturned because they lost focus and attention and devotion to Jesus? You know, before the pandemic hit, Lifeway did a, a research study, and it found that in 2019, there were 3,000 evangelical church plants, which is great news, but 4,500 evangelical churches closed. And so there's probably some good reasons for some of that, right? Some, some of those churches closed because, well, they, they merged with another church, or they outgrew their space, and, and those can be really good reasons. But I wonder, out of those 4,500 churches that closed in 2019, how many of them closed because they got off mission, and how many of them closed because they lost their attention and their focus? They got focused on something that really didn't matter, and it took their hearts and their affections away from what did matter. And that was Jesus and God's blueprint for a life. See, I think we have to ask the question, are we on mission? Like as a church, are we on mission? Forefront church, are we on mission? Because a healthy church stays on mission. And so what is our mission here at Forefront Church? Our mission is to lead people to experience new life in Jesus. And we believe that the gospel, that the good news that Jesus gives us is the way that we do that. That the good news and the gospel that Jesus gives us is, is the path to the good life. But we have to wonder in our own lives, is there a place where we're starting to stray, where we've taken our attention off, where our affections are beginning to, to shift? Are we focused on God's mission and his blueprint for our life? Because a healthy church stays focused on the mission. So Paul says this, these, these, these false teachers were coming in, they were, they were turning over these, these, these families, and they were taking the church off mission. The second thing that Paul tells us here in this text is that a healthy church also has the right motivation. See, not this is a healthy church on mission. A healthy church, if we forefront are going to be in a healthy church, we need to take a page out of Paul's book here. A healthy church has the right motivations. Notice back here in verse 11. Notice these false teachers. Notice these, these, uh, these teachers that have come up and started teaching this, this wrong doctrine and started pulling people away from God. It says this, they must be silenced. We've got to close their mouths because they're upsetting, whole, the, they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Now, we don't know what the shameful gain is. We don't know if they were teaching so they could, um, they could gain popularity 
or if they were doing it so they could gain influence. My guess is that, that they were doing this because they wanted to be leaders and they wanted to gain influence and popularity. Could have been that they were doing it for some kind of financial gain, that they were trying to grow financially somehow through this situation. We don't know, but what we know is that they had the wrong intentions, that their motives were wrong. And so Paul is really saying we got to check our motives. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why, what, what are our motives? What drives us? And I think it's a good question for us. If our attention drives our devotion, then what is motivating us? Like, have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, what, what really motivates you? What motivates you to get up to go to work every day? You might say, oh, that's my family. It's so I can pay my bills. It's so I could take a great vacation. It's so I can retire someday. Because I'm not sure Social Security is going to be around, right? So I'm going to retire someday. What's your motivation? What's your motivation for going to church? What's your motivation for picking up God's word? Do you have the right motivation? Or are you trying to get something out of it that God never says is his blueprint for our life? I think a healthy church has the right motivations. And so I think we always have to ask that question. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I doing this? What is the motivation behind that? Paul says a healthy church has the right motivations, but also notice this. A healthy church keeps God's word first. That a healthy church has to keep God's word first. It has to be supreme. It has to be elevated above all things. Notice what these false teachers were doing in verse 14. It's really interesting. It says there in verse 14 that they were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who take away from the truth. Now, that's interesting. Jewish myths is what Paul refers to here. He's saying we got to stop this because they're teaching people that they need to follow the Old Testament law, but they're also teaching people to follow these Jewish myths. So what do you think Paul is talking about here? There's a lot of debate around this, but the, the idea is that, that Paul is, is talking about these leaders are, are, are referring to, to the teachings of Jewish authors, and they were elevating that teaching to the level of God's word. And so they're saying, hey, this Jewish author who, who said this and, and this Jewish author who, who, who said this, this is in line with God's word. So, you know, do what Jesus says, but also do what this guy says. And Paul's like, no, you can't put anything on the pedestal with God's word. God's word sits high above everything else. It is preeminent in our churches. And so anytime we raise anything else up to that level, we lose our focus. And I say that, and I think in our minds, you hopefully would all go, well, we would never do that. But why would we ever do that? Why would we ever place anything up with God's word? But you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody about this the other day. I think we do this without realizing it sometimes. How many of you have read the Left Behind series? Anybody here? Several of you have read the Left Behind books. They're really fun. They're really fun. The Nicolas Cage movie, not so good. The books, a little better, right? A little, little better. But the Left Behind series is really good. But you know, sometimes I'll talk to people about the book of Revelation, or I'll talk to people about end times, and you know what always comes up? What happened in the, in the Left Behind books? It's like we get this picture in our mind, oh, that's what Nicolas Cage did. That's what's going to happen. That's what John's talking about. Because in 95 AD, when John wrote the book of Revelation, he was talking about all these crazy flying things and chips in our hands, right? And so sometimes we read these books and we think, oh yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what God's talking about there. And we almost elevate these things with God's word. And we don't mean to, but it just naturally happens because it gives us a picture in our mind. That maybe have been what was happening, but what we do know is how easy it is for us to take something that may not be the main thing it might not be a bad thing, but it's not the main thing, and we elevate it to the main thing. 
Because I think sometimes if we look around our churches, we can see that, that we can easily get off mission sometimes by focusing on things that we don't see Jesus talk a lot about. I mean, how many times have we had debates about end-time prophecy? Jesus talks a little bit about end-time prophecy. John talks a little bit about it. Daniel talks a little bit about it. But sometimes we talk a lot about it. So is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. But is it the main thing? How often do we talk about politics in Christian circles? Every, I'm just going to say it, every politician has, wants Jesus on their side. I mean, if you just watch the commercials, Jesus is a Republican, he's a Democrat, he's a Libertarian, he's part of the Green Party, right? He's even a Marxist, right? You can make Jesus whatever you want to make him. But what does Jesus say he is? He's Jesus. See, sometimes we elevate these things with the level of God's word, and, and really, we're taking things out of context. And so Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, make sure that God's word is supreme, that God's word is the only thing, that God's word is that main focus area. Now, now here, here's a question that you might wonder, and then I wonder, is like, is it okay? Like, is it okay for me to care about things that maybe aren't the main thing? Like, is it okay for me to really like the book of Revelation? Is it okay for me to be really involved in politics? Paul answers that actually in verse 15. Notice what he says. This is interesting. We're not going to be able to unpack this whole thing, but it's really interesting. He says this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess, verse 16, to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. What Paul is saying that if you are the pure, meaning if you're someone who said yes to Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus has saved you, he's changed you, he has forgiven you of all your sin, and now you are set on the path of life to the pure, all things are pure, assuming they're not sinful. What that means is that we have liberty to, get in, to, to enjoy things and to do things and to get involved in things. But the, the thing we have to beware of is have we allowed something that's secondary, that's not the main thing, to become elevated with the main thing? Have we put something else too high on the list? So Jesus is saying that, or, or Paul is just saying that, we have to make sure our focus is not causing us to drift. These, these false teachers, their focus caused them to drift, and they're taking other people with them because they're not focusing on the main thing. So are we keeping God's word where it needs to be? A healthy church keeps God's word first. But also notice this. Paul says because of this, we have to do something about it with these false teachers. Lastly, a healthy church confronts error with truth. Paul's saying to Titus, Titus, we've got to do something about this. We can't just let this continue. So notice what he says back to, uh, or back to verse 13. He says this, Therefore, rebuke them softly, gently, easily, what does he say? Rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. There's a good reason that we're going to rebuke them. Now, what does it mean to rebuke? How many of you said the word rebuke this week? Any of you rebuke or be rebuked this week? The word rebuke means to help bring to light our error. So we have to help bring up to light the errors that we've drifted from, where we've taken our focus off. But that word sharply it actually comes from the idea of cutting something like an axe. So it's identify it and cut it out. Identify our error where we've gone astray and cut it out and get rid of it. But let's be honest. That's really hard to do. How many of you just love to help rebuke people? Now, there may be some, right? Some of you might be like, oh, man, I'm great at that. Let me know. Put me in, coach. I'll go anywhere you need me to go. Most of us, we're not very good at that. 
Most of us really do our best to avoid those conversations because they're uncomfortable and they make us uneasy and we're afraid it's going to cause problems if we're rebuking each other sharply, all these things. And so what happens is we end up going, eh, you know, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Nah, you know, it's going to work out. These things typically work out. And so we see a friend who may be falling into some, some false teaching. He's reading some prosperity gospel. He's listening to, to somebody he shouldn't listen to who's, who's contra- contradicting the words of Jesus. And we go, oh, they'll figure it out. But really what they need is, is you and me coming alongside them and going, hey, l- let me show you where we're falling off track, where we're getting off focus, and we can point back to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, he, he says this about th- this idea. He says, do not think any error to be harmless, for truth is a very is very precious. But an, an error, even when we do not see it to be so, may lead to the most solemn consequences of mischief. We don't realize it, but a little error can spiral out of control and take us off focus, take us off mission, and get us in a place we don't want to go. So Paul says to Titus, Titus, we have to confront error with truth. Now, a lot of times we struggle with this and we think, well, I really don't want to confront error with truth, um, but maybe I can just do it very gently. Maybe I can just do it very lovingly, and I think that's a good approach. But there's just sometimes when you have to just sharply address it. Courtney and I, we live on a street that's not a super busy street, but it's a fairly busy street. And, and so if the kids are playing out in the front yard, there's enough cars that go by. Now, if the kids are playing outside and let's say a ball rolls in the road or they get on their scooter and they're getting ready to go out and I see a car, is that a good time for me to sit them down and say, okay, now kids, let's talk about this. So this is a very busy street, averages 35 miles an hour. So if you're going to run out, then you're going to have to be very careful to run at a certain speed so you can go pick up that ball and get back in time. No, I'm not going to do that at all. I'm going to say, hey, stop. And they're going to turn, they're going to look at me, and then I'm going to bring them back, and we're going to have a conversation. See, sometimes we can't, we don't have time to have nice, gentle conversations, but with love, we have to rebuke sharply. And this is what Paul's talking about. That as a church, we have to be willing to stand up for truth and confront error with truth. So today, it's October 31st. It's Halloween but today also is the anniversary of a very significant event that happened 504 years ago. On October 31st, two th- or on October 31st, 1517, a young German priest, monk named Martin Luther took a bold stand and went to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany and nailed what we know as his 95 thesis to the to the door. Now, Luther was, um, was in the Catholic Church. He was a professor at the local seminary. And, but, but Luther had begun to see the error of the church and decided it was time to confront that truth. See, Luther was upset. Because if you know much about Catholic Church history, you know that there was this sale of indulgences. But the sale of indulgences meant that you could pay money to the church and shorten the time that a loved one spent in purgatory, which we don't ever see anything written about in the Bible, by the way. And so he was upset about that, but also he was upset because the church had elevated the teachings of the forefathers and the pope to that of God's word. So Luther was upset about this. And so Luther said, it's time to have a conversation and it's time to confront error with truth. So he drew up 95 theses, 95 ideas, 95 things he wants to debate with the church. He didn't want to, he did not want to get rid of the church. He just wanted to have a conversation to help fix the church and help bring them back to the truth. So he walks to the church. He nails his 95 thesis on the door. 
But what he didn't realize was it was going to start a firestorm that would lead to him running for his life and what we know now as the Protestant Reformation. If it wouldn't have been for Luther's actions, we would not have Forefront Church here today for us to be sitting and talking about how much truth matters. See, Luther and the other reformers like Calvin and Zwingli, they believed so much that God's word was supreme and that God's word was it, that they were going to stand and even give their lives for the truth that that needs to be first. They believe that truth matters. And what God is telling us through Paul's words is that the blueprint for a healthy church and the blueprint for a healthy Christian who's living the good life is someone who is devoted to the truth, who's somebody who devotes their lives to pursuing the truth. And so as we close, I, I want to just spend a moment bringing this home for us. You and I have a battle in front of us. Forefront, you and I live in a culture that wants to do everything they can to tell us that there is no truth. You and I, especially those that had kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews, we have a battleground in front of us. Just like Paul told Titus, you and I have that same. Because we live in a culture that says either truth is relative or truth is a matter of opinion. But we're, yet, we're called to stand for the truth. We're called to stand up and, and be people of truth. And I think for you and me, the biggest threat the biggest threat that we are going to have to deal with in our time is the threat of the distraction. Because there are so many things trying to pull our attention and our focus and our devotion away from God's truth. So if it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something, think about how much time we spend in a di distracted. Are we becoming experts at distraction? If I watch Amazon Prime for three hours a night, it doesn't take me that many years to become an expert at distraction. But yet God calls us to be devoted, to become experts in truth. I, I mentioned earlier John Mark Comer. I've got a quote I want to share with you. I'm going to invite the band back on stage, the worship team, to the stage as I share this quote with you. I think this is powerful, and it really drives home this idea of where does our attention and our affection and our devotion go. Notice what John Mark Comer says. He says, because what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you give your attention to. Stop. Think about that. Your mind is the sum of what you give your attention to. So if what we give our attention to is mindless things, things that aren't true, or things that don't matter, how does that steal our devotion? That's powerful. Keep reading. He says that. In the end, your life is no more than the sum. That, and he says this. That bodes well for the apprentices of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in the world, but not those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion-charged drama or the nonstop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drive. But again, we become what we give our attention to for better or for worse. And so forefront, I want you to, to, to really think about this. This week, what are you giving your attention to? Where are you putting your, your focus? And what is stealing away your affections? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible tells us that the good life comes from following him.
that the good life comes from trusting in him and pursuing him and pursuing God's blueprint for our life. It's when we do that, it's when God changes our hearts and refocuses our attention, our focus, and our devotion to become the people that God has called us to be. So this week, let's ask that question. Where have our, has our attention drifted? Where has our focus gone? And let's go back to the gospel, the, the, the truth that Jesus loved you much, so much he sent his son here for you. He gave his life for you so he could set you on the path for life, the good life, the life he created you to live. Would you pray with me?